Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to this episode of The Stages Podcast. My guest today celebrates over 60 years as an entertainer. I'm delighted to have the legendary Stan Munro join us in this fascinating conversation. Born in Wales in 1941, Stan Munro has accumulated a lifetime of wonderful adventure, challenge and triumph. His is an eventful and colourful existence, navigated with resilience and a cheeky sense of humour. Stan's journey as a gender illusionist across several decades and continents has reaped countless anecdotes, and he's recorded them all in an autobiography, which is bound to amuse, shock and tease, as indeed has he on countless stages. It has been a career in heels, and Stan has delighted, confused and amused audiences around the country. He is wicked, charming and an absolute delight. As you will realise in this riotous episode, of the Stages podcast. I've got a very good memory. There's a little square thing in the middle of my face. Um, I, I can't see it from my end. Oh, hang on. I'll say got it. Got it. Is that okay? Yeah, that's good. That's good. And, um, yes, I'm on. I'm going to the gym, but I'm on that man shake, Peter, because since I... Uh, since lockdown, I'm not going to use that as an excuse, but I've put on so much weight. Oh, haven't we all? And it's very hard to take off. Look at all this. Oh, my God. No, you look gorgeous. Have you never carried any weight during your life? I suppose you haven't. That's been no. part, of, part of your career, keeping well, trim. Peter, I've consistently been on a diet, my dear. Right. So all through working life. No, I've got a, a, a wardrobe full of costumes I can't even fucking get into. <laughs> so you've you've been hungry the, your entire career? Yes, I have. I've always been on a, some sort of crazy diet. The things we do for our art. Well, yes. You know, actually, to this day, I can't, I, I hate looking at a fat drag queen. Why is that? Why is that? There's no glamour. Just the uh, just the whole presentation. But big girls can look gorgeous. Oh, of course. Look at me. <laughs> You'll have to embrace a new phase of your dragdom. Yes, of course. When everything calms down with the COVID, hopefully, because we're still trying to publish this bloody book. So you've you've completed a book about your love story? Yeah, a year ago. 
And so I help from William Broom. And are you waiting for a publisher? We're looking for a publisher. Right. We've tried a few houses, but a few have written back and said, oh, COVID is, we'll get to you eventually. COVID has slowed things down. Da, 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 da. You know. Bloody COVID. Yeah. Do you have a We've name? Thought of oh, the name of the book? Yeah. Queen of the Valleys. Queen of the Valleys. So you're born in Wales? Yeah. Cardiff? Uh, up the valleys from there. What up in the mountains. The mountains. Yeah. What was their village called? Our village um, was called Clanback. What's the name of that famous railway station, which is, has, is a very long yeah. word? Now that's in North Wales. Right. We, we, I was born in South Wales. And Can, funnily enough, I'd never been to North Wales, but about four or five years ago it would be, I was over in the UK and someone knew me on Facebook and they said you should come to North Wales, Bangor, to do a show at this pub. And I went there and um, it was the worst night ever. Nobody arrived in till 11.30 from the pubs. It was awful. I hated it. And were they all pissed? Everybody. It was shocking. In fact, I've got a, still got a friend on Facebook in Wales that I often talk to, and uh, we often have a laugh about that night because he was there. Right. <laughs> and he saw me die on my ass. You've no doubt performed to many different types of audiences through your career. Do you prefer them if they're a little bit lubricated or or straight? It, uh, it doesn't matter, really. Um, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, I prefer a straight audience, though. I, I loathe working to at, at a gay club. And I would say I've only done about three gay clubs in my whole life. Is that true? Yes. I've Is always... It... Well, first of all, it was the money. There's no money in gay clubs. Right. You know, they expect you to dress up and do it for nothing. But um, I used to do... Um, I've done one in Melbourne at the Star Hotel in Collingwood. And um, where was the other one? Oh, I've done one in Swansea in Wales, but that was a good one. Right. Hmm. Well, that's not a bad statistic. Yes, because I earn my living at straight club, Peter. Which we will, yeah. we will talk about at length throughout this conversation. Uh, Stan, are we allowed to reveal your age? I don't mind. So you've recently become an octogenarian. Yes, I'm 80. Are you still performing? I haven't done any shows. Uh, the last show I did was late last year, and that was for a charity in this town. Because you're living yeah. in Kyogle in northern New South Wales, aren't you? When I first arrived here, Peter, I used to travel back and forth from here to Melbourne to do shows. I travelled with a... I used to be a support act 
for a Roy Orbison impersonator, right? Yeah. I mean, if you closed your eyes, you'd think it was Roy. He was such a bastard to work with. Every time I hear Roy Orbison on the radio now, I think, oh, God. What was it like growing up in Wales? Did you grow up in a, was it coal mining, the industry in in the town that you were? We were were about uh, a mile from uh, a coal mine. My father used to live, work on the top in the steam room. Right. At a, a, a well-known mine, he he um, worked himself to death. He died at sixty-one. Tremendous health hazard working in environments like that. Oh, of course, yes, and hard work. Yeah. He did the three shifts: mornings, afternoons, and nights. And when he worked nights, it was horrific at home growing up because. You weren't allowed to make any noise because Dad was in bed. Yeah, sleeping during the day. Was there any yeah. ex- any expectation that you would become a miner? No. Perish the thought. <laughs> what were you harbouring as your aspirations for a career? Was it always going to be showbiz? Well, my, uh, my sister went... Uh, a couple of um, middle-aged dancers that had worked during the war years as dancers, and they opened up a school, and they opened up lessons in our little village. I say our village. I had to go down the mountain to the village. And um, I started... uh, um, my sister, my sister and I went for a while dan- learning dancing and ballet, and but my sister gave it away, and I stayed on. I've only got my mother to thank for ending up where I am, because she really pushed me into um, dancing, and we used to travel as a little concert party all around the Welsh valleys. And we used to do a lot of charities for the YWCA, Young Women's Christian Association. You didn't get a look in with the the YMCA? No. (laughs) No such luck. (laughs) What was was, uh, school like for you, Stan? Terrific. Were Were you bullied? Yes, all the time. Especially when I started dancing at nine, uh, at eight years of age, when the kids found out that I went to the dance dance class, oh, forget it. You never seemed stuck for a word. Were you able to sort of hit back at them with the with a sharp tongue? No, I wasn't smart in those days. Right. I only got as far as secondary school because I was never I I did make any excuse not to go to school and especially in the winter when it snowed it was a good excuse not to go down to the village to school because you know you'd have to uh, trundle through you know snow foot foot four foot high you know i hated school with a passion but <laughs> i'll get that i've got a very good 
uh, story about the last day of school. So tell me about that last day at school, Stan. Well, the last day at school, it was just fabulous because um, I'd started dressing up in drag at home at Christmas parties and birthday parties, and I would lip sync to people like Rosemary Clooney, um, Eartha Kitt. I'm just an old-fashioned girl with an old-fashioned mind. Not sophisticated, I'm the plain and simple kind. I want an old-fashioned house with an old-fashioned fence and an old-fashioned... People like that that I had on 78 revs uh, per minute, you know, the uh, old records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the popular songs of the day. And I used to dress, get dressed up in my bedroom upstairs and I'd come down and it would a Christmas party. They knew that Stan was going to make an appearance, you see. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they, they clear a little space in front of the old television on the carpet and I'd come down and somebody put the record on and I'd make, da-da, my big appearance. And I used to lip sync a number. They never said anything about it because I was, you know, I, I used to wear bits and pieces of my mother's clothing or whatever. And um, then all of a sudden CNA, which is a big store in, was a big store in the UK at that time, I bought a hat wig. And it was a hat, but you could comb it into a wig. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. And, and I grabbed a blonde one and I used to, I wore that one to death. But anyway, I um, I do a number. So anyway, when the last day of school, they were having a school leaving concert with kids playing violins and some kids getting up and doing recitations and, or, you know, and... Um, so I decided to do a bit of drag, but I was only doing it on the last day because when the concert was finished, I never had to go back. So I, I got changed in the dressing room with all the school kids standing around. Well, they were aghast when I started putting lipstick and a skirt on and, and that hat wig. <laughs> and... Um, I went out and I I think I'm uh, lip-synced to Rosemary Clooney, Hey Mambo, Mambo Italiano. Hey Mambo, Mambo Italiano, Hey Mambo, Mambo Italiano, go, go, go. You mixed up Sigiliano, all you Calabrese do the mambo like a crazy with a Hey Mambo. And Mum had made us uh, like a frilly... Uh, Spanish skirt for me. Oh, it was fabulous, I thought. And I went out. Well, you know, the, I could see from the stage the kids were absolutely gobsmacked when I came out lip-syncing this number. You know, anyway, I got a big cheer at the end of it, blah, blah, blah. Went backstage and took it off. And Mum and I headed off, and that was my last day in school. So I, I I never went back so I could, you know, they'd have a comeback. You know what I mean? You might have returned to rave reviews. Well, yes. 
actually, I did when I was doing the concert party thing. I was about twelve, and um, we did the concert party. Did presented um, Cinderella at the Lyceum Theatre in Newport, which was um, a, a very well-known theatre for travelling variety acts. You know, this is in the times when variety was very big in, in the UK, especially on the Moss circuit, which I ended up getting onto. And um, we used to do, uh, we did this Cinderella at the theatre and my dad came and sat in the audience because I saw him and um, I played the dame and I was 12 years of age and I got a fabulous write-up in the local rag and it said dame steals the pantomime and of course my mother was very proud or so was I and um, I've still got it. It's on my uh, Facebook, but in a special section where I keep my personal photograph. Right. And the write-up is there, and it says, Young Stan Davies, which is Davies is my real name. And um, it said, Young Stan Davies proved uh, he could keep up with the best and this boy is heading for stardom, blah, 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 at 12 years of age. And that was fabulous. I've still got that right. Wonderful. You would have grown up going to pantomimes, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. Yes, I loved it. And we did pantomimes all the time. I loved a pantomime. You can't beat a pantomime. Or a pantomime dame. Or a pantomime dame. I mean, there's such a tradition in the UK. Yeah, yeah. And times, you know. So, so Stan Davies, I, I'm guessing that the Munro came from Marilyn or? No, no. no. The Munro came from, uh, no, I was, I was still doing um, dance lessons and concerts at, um, at about 17. And um, I got a, a message from one of the kids in the pantomime saying this chappy that's living in Newport wants to talk to me because he saw me at one of the concerts and he wants to talk to me and I thought goodness what could that be about so I was given the address and I went out to it he was living on an estate he was boarding and he had been, he had come out from Australia with a trio of guys and uh, they were acrobatic dancers and um, he had broken his leg. So he'd been doing pantomime. So he stayed on at the digs that he was stopping in with this broken leg. But uh, the leg healed, his partner's uh, went back to Australia, but he stayed in this town and he was driving buses, but he happened to see me at this concert. And he probably saw, um, I don't know, he probably thought, well, there's a boy that can dance. You know, I was 
really into tap dancing. And I hadn't done much acrobat acrobatic work at all. Anyway, I went and met him and he said, look, I'm planning to, um, I'm planning to uh, get back into showbiz and go around the Moss Empires with an act that I want to call the Two Monroes. So we rehearsed. He said, are you interested? Well, of course I was. I was working at a bakery at the time. And um, I said, yes. So we rehearsed for about six months and we went, we, we went professional in um, late 58. 1958, and we got a fabulous Jewish agent, and she loved our act because we did acrobatic and tap, you see, and we used to uh, dance on top of um, uh, suitcases. They were specially made suitcases that you could tap dance on, and uh, we did all the, um, like the big uh, Moss Empire circuit around the UK like the Glasgow Empire. Now, the Glasgow Empire was the, um, was the English artist's death knell, especially for comedians, you see, because there's a well-known story and true that Des O'Connor, when he first appeared at the Glasgow Empire, the audience were so bad to him on his first spot of the night, he didn't know how to get off stage, so he just fainted. <laughs> he faked a faint, and the stage manager had to drag him off. But he still had to go on on the second half of the evening. <laughs> and he died on his ass again. Oh, the poor bugger. So uh, anyway, we did a lot of the uh, Glasgow empires, uh, the empires in the Birmingham. I'm talking 3,000 seaters here, big, beautiful theatres, Peter. We were very lucky to do them because we were a sight act, you see, what you call a sight act. We opened up the first half of the show. And second half, we'd open up again. The side act always opened up each half, you know. Then you'd get the second comedian, then you'd get uh, a singer, then you'd get the, the first comedian, then you'd get the star. And we were working with such wonderful people, you know. Um, who, we who, with, who were you working with? We worked, we did our big, first big show was with the Andrew sisters. Re Maxine, Patty and Laverne. The very ones. He was a famous trumpet man from our Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with a draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. And it was at the Southampton Gourmont Theatre. Right. Right? That was our big first uh, big first variety week. They, they were touring around 
the UK. And the, of course, I'd heard recordings of the Andrews sisters on the 78s at home on our gramophone. You know, um, Boogie Woogie Boogle Boy and on all of those. Don't Rum sit under the apple tree. Rum and Coca-Cola. Uh, yeah. yeah. Coca-Cola. Well, of course, I got to um, see them every night because a band call, now band call, Peter, was on a Monday morning and all the artists went uh, at nine o'clock, put their music uh, on the stage and they were, um, they rehearsed their music with the orchestra and then I went right down the line, each artist. But on the um, morning they did their um, uh, band call, the Andrews sisters, we'd finished our band call, and they said to us, um, look, boys, we, uh, we need um, an assistant dresser at the side of the stage. Uh, could you boys help us, you know, because we haven't got, our last one has um, disappeared or, or gone back to the States or whatever. And we said, well, of course, we said, yes, fabulous, you know, helping the, the, the Andrews sisters do their quick changes. How fabulous is that? Fabulous. So we did. And do you know what? This is a true story. It's the first time. I heard a woman drop the F word. And they were, uh, I think it was Maxine. Uh, yes, Laverne and uh, Patty. No, it was Maxine, I'm sure. She said the F word because um, she couldn't get into a frock straight away. So she went, oh, F it. <laughs> and, of course, me, uh, Fresh from the Welsh Valleys, couldn't believe it. Curled your hair. But, eh? Curled your hair. It did. <laughs> anyway, um, what we worked with, um, and we worked with Cilla Black Show. We worked with, um, we did pantomime with Petula Clark and Tommy Cooper. And it was <laughs> at the same theatre that we'd done the Andrew Sisters show. Oh, beautiful! But we did six. We did six weeks in Panto with uh, Petula Clark. This was pre her recording downtown. She hadn't done downtown or any of those. She was in movies when she was a kid. Yeah. Wow. So you, yes, a burgeoning career. You saw her before she became the complete Petula Clark. The complete Petula Clark. She was lovely and so tiny. Do you know, I think she was smaller than um, Carly Minogue. Wow. Wow. And still she performing in her still 80s. Still performing at 87. Yeah. What about that? Because she, she did uh, Mary Poppins last year in London. The Bird Lady. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when did you begin to do drag professionally? Well, I didn't do drag apart from the Christmas and birthday parties until 
I went, we decided to, uh, after six years going uh, around the UK, and we worked the American bases in uh, Germany as well. And we were in the, um, I don't know if you've heard of her. We were in the Tessie O'Shea concert party. Yep. Do you know Tessie O'Shea? Absolutely. She was a wonderful woman. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, she had this little tiny pianist. He was Polish. Ernest Wampola, I think his name was. Anyway, we'd, we'd done all this and Neville said, I need to go back to Australia and I, I intend to get married. Right? And... Um, uh, he was in the closet, very closeted person. Right. But uh, he wanted to go back and get married. And so I thought, for £10, I get to travel to for, to Australia, you know, bring it on. <laughs> so off we sailed in um, February 63, and we arrived in Sydney in, uh, I think it was a, second or third of April of that year. And we did our act around the RSL clubs for a short time, and we got booked at Sammy Lee's um, a Latin Quarter in Pitt Street in Sydney. He had a club there. And we'd been seen by the choreographer at a club, the, the choreographer, Sheila Cruz, choreographed the showgirls at the Latin Quarter, plus she'd just taken on the lay girls in King's Cross. And she said to me, we're looking for a male dancer at lay girls. Well, I'd never heard of lay girls, but... I had already been to the cross and I'd been to a drag club called the Jewel Box Review, which was a drag. And when I first time I, I couldn't believe how fabulous these kids were dressed up, you know. But in those days, it wasn't all that crazy um, Ruda Paul makeup. It was looking very feminine. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so Sheila said to me, if you're interested in um, doing the job, because Neville had got a day job, and I'd got a day job too. I was working at Dairy Farmers in Lidcombe in Sydney. I was at the milk factory. Anyway, um, because we were only doing shows at the club RSLs at the weekend. So I went up to Lay Girls to see the show, and I thought it was just magic, you know. Peter Moselle was comparing, and um, Carlotta was in it, and Carlotta was still a boy in those days. Um, Anyway, I saw the show and uh, she said, well, why don't you come along on a debt propped up? And I got a friend of mine to 
dragged me up with a nice wig and proper makeup and everything. And I went up there on a Friday night. Now, a Friday night at Lay Girl, they would have a third show, right? And the third show, they welcomed any guest artist they could. Because the more guest artists, the less the kids had to go on and do a spot. So I went on as a guest um, uh, artist. And I think I lip synced to, um, what did I do? Oh, You Need Hands by some American artist. Can't think of her name now. Her and her husband did an act. And uh, of course, I got the job. And I started as a male dancer uh, within two weeks. And of course, I had to lip sync to male parts and everything like that. And I was doing, I did a bit of comedy drag to start off with. And um, then eventually, down the line, I started to do. Um, the glamour side of it. And I ended up, after Peter Moselle um, left to go to open a show in the Gold Coast, uh, they brought in uh, uh, an Australian female impersonator who had worked in France. And his name was Tracy Lee. Now, Tracy Lee had been born in Sydney and he worked in a big review in Paris and he returned to Australia and they hired him after Peter left to um, to compare and do his act. Now his act was it wasn't um, it was a fabulous act and he was a fabulous compare very glamorous but he didn't have that, uh, how could I say, that common Australian touch. There's that larrikin quality that the Australians have, an ability yes, to, to yes, laugh yes. at themselves. Yes, well, I hooked on to that very quickly. And um, so after Tracy left, I got the job as... Compare, you know. Yeah, that's great. So, Stan, are you telling me that that you, before you arrived at Legills, the only drag you'd done really were your Christmas family parties? Yes, yes. So, who are you learning from when you start to do drag at Legills? Who were the, who were the main performers? Well, I would just watch um, how they did their makeup. Can you, you name? Know? Can you name any of the queens who were performing at that time? I can name Carlotta, Holly Brown. Now, Holly Brown was brilliant. He left when Peter Moselle left, and he was in Peter Moselle's show on the Gold Coast at the Broad Beach Hotel. Right? Now, um, Holly Brown ended up 
working in America. He had a fabulous act. He used to pull clothes out of a big trunk, and he was a great um, mimic. Fabulous act, beautiful person. And now he came back to Australia in the mid-80s, and he was very ill. And he ended up dying of AIDS. And he's now buried in Dubbo, where he was born. And on his headstone, no reference to lay girls, no reference to his, uh, his, because uh, he lived in drag and he he's, had breath and everything. So his drag persona is his drag name. No, no reference to his drag name. He's just buried under his name, which is Robert Tongue. His family didn't, you know, didn't want any um, reference of anything on his gravestone. It's quite sad, really, having sort of it achieved. sad because amongst the gay community uh, from the old days, he's very well known and respected because he was such a fabulous performer. Well, that's beautiful that his legacy lives on in the memory of those people who knew him and uh, got to be in the audience to see him. Another person that uh, I was working at um, Les Girls at the time went on to be very well known, had a sex change, and toured the clubs with someone who was very big on the UK circuit and made his name and made recordings, big star in the UK, and his name was Tony Monopoly. Now, Tony Monopoly, if you look him up, you'll see uh, he was a recording star in the UK and did shows everywhere. Yes, very well, uh, and he did TV work over there and everything. And Tony Monopoly, when he first got into the business, he'd been a priest. Really? He'd been a young priest, and he got out of the priesthood. (laughs) Well, they're both jobs that require a frock, aren't they? Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) He he got out, and he was uh, partnered up with... um, Susan Legay, and they travelled around the clubs in Australia. But then Tony went overseas and he went on a show that was run by Huey Green and it was called Opportunity Knocks. And Tony won that and became a big star. Fabulous. Fabulous. Now, there's a lot of glamorous names that you're mentioning here. Did Once your career took off at Lay Girls, did you think about changing your name to, to something else or you were always determined oh, to keep Stan Monroe? I never wanted a drag name because, see, I, uh, Danny LaRue was one of my idols, you know. Uh, you know, I'd read about him in magazines or what have you. I hadn't physically met the man. <laughs> That's a story. Now, can I say it on this? Of course podcast? you can. People are at home thinking, tell us, Stan, tell us. 
Anyway, how I met Danny LaRue, I had left Lay Girls in Melbourne. After, um, uh, when I worked in Lay Girls in Melbourne, I after I I was working, let's back backtrack here and we'll get the story right. I went to Hong Kong by the invitation of Carl George, whose brother, um, Jacobson. Kevin, uh, Kevin Jacobson. Kevin Jacobson had a big agency. And Carl contacted me and said, um, Carlotta is comparing in Hong Kong. She's only been there uh, a couple of months and she wants that. He's going to leave. So I said, well, I'll take her place. And I went to Hong Kong and uh, starred in the show there for six months until my dad died. And then I had to go back to the UK. Now, in the UK, after I got over for dad's funeral, um, I didn't have any work. So... I was reading the stage newspaper. It's a bit like Variety. And that's where and all the auditions are in that, aren't they? Yes, all of that. And I saw they wanted a female impersonator in Beirut. <laughs> really? You ready for that? And that was in... That would have been early 69 and I thought fabulous and I and I rung the, the number and they said oh come up to uh, London and blah 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 bring your you know all your photos which I had some fabulous photos which I had taken in Hong Kong color shots and um, that was at my time in my life when I was uh, as slim as a pencil and um, anyway I went up to London to, um, what was the name of this well-named street where they have rehearsal halls. Anyway, I turned up and I didn't have to audition or anything. I just showed the the um, agent my, um, my pictures. Your portfolio. Portfolio. And he said, oh, no, you don't have to audition. They, they look fabulous. You have to wear... Oh, when can you start? I was straight away. So off I goes to um, Beirut. And um, I did six months in Beirut. And then halfway through the run there in Beirut, uh, the um, lockdown came at um, everybody had to uh, be off the streets by one o'clock in the morning. So I, I worked at this club. and. Um, I uh, I loved it. I loved Beirut, and all the audience, but they were they were all dressed in the uh, full um, shakes. They were from the uh, from the oil fields. That's all the customers were, and really, it was uh, it was a well known place. Uh, the Kit Kat Club was. You can Google it. It's online. And it was right next door to St. George Hotel on the front at Beirut. And uh, 
I worked seven days a week. Did, did you experience much homophobia in Beirut? Oh, no. Really? Right. Haven't you read about the Lebanese, dear? <laughs> I have, yes. Well, it, it was just great. I loved it. But the thing was, before the show, the contract demanded that you had to sit with the customers and get them to buy drinks. Of course, yes. Blah, blah, blah. No, you wouldn't consume them, but, uh, you know, you'd sit with them and they were there. And it was, a well -known, uh, uh, it was a well-known club and it was the, they used the French word travesty. You were, you were known as a because when they pulled my pictures in the window, um, the first day I went there to work, I saw I had my photo in the picture, and underneath it said travesty, and I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> so I said to the manager, I said, "You haven't got my name. What's travesty?" And he explained that it was French for, you know, female impersonator. I had a great time. Great. Now we've great we said we've gone time. we've gone down a side street there. What happened to Danny LaRue? Oh, so anyway, when I got back to um, when I'd finished uh, when I got back to um, uh, uh, Sydney and I, they offered me Melbourne and I stayed there eight years. After that, I went solo, and I'd met Scylla in the UK years before and uh anyway i went to see danny larue in sydney he had his uh he brought his show out so of course I, uh, off i go and um at the end of his show he uh he said oh um uh, join me in an applause because right at the front here we've got that wonderful singing star Scylla black and I thought, oh, Christ, Scylla's in the audience. Right. So I, I raced to the foyer after the show. And, of course, I met Danny LaRue and <laughs> the famous Danny. So, no, I saw Scylla in the, and I hadn't seen Scylla for years. And I said, to her, I saw Scylla and she said, oh, Stan, I'm just going back stage have you met danny and i said no oh, but i'd love to so we went back and i met the famous danny and he said i've heard about you don't know how so i got i said to him i was i'd um i lived in melbourne you know and he said oh I, you must come to the show dear boy call me dear boy all the time and he, which I did, I went to see a show in Melbourne and I got to know him because I was working around Melbourne and um, doing solo stuff. He ended up, uh, we ended up inviting him out to our house, um, my partner and I at the time, who still lives here with me. And um, he, uh, we met Danny and he came to the house and uh, he um, brought 
he brought his hangers on with him, but uh, he brought his manager, Jack Hansen, was his longtime partner. Yeah. But also he bought Wayne King. Pianist. Who, who, who was his then partner, right? Right, yep. And uh, a few other people, and uh, we had dinner there and everything like that, blah, blah, blah. And of course, uh, the house, we tarted up the house, you know, everything looked spicko. And I'd heard on the grapevine that Danny only drank French champagne, my dear. And uh, yes, but the night we went to, <laughs> we went. When he came, he said to me, oh, dear boy, where, when, where can we see you work? And I thought, where can I think? Because I had a few Sunday gigs coming up, and he only he could only go on a Sunday because he worked, you know, Monday to Saturday doing his show. So, and one was coming up. Now, this is a true story. It was at the... Uh, Mooney Ponds Working Men's Club. Could they get any camper than that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> it was at the Mooney Club, Mooney Ponds Working Men's Club, and such a place does exist. Of course, when I knew he was being in the audience, I had to set aside a, a special table for him, and I said to the manager, look, he has to be looked after, and blah, blah, blah. It is Danny LaRue. And da 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 da, and um, I had my hairdresser there with me, uh, to make sure my, I look fabulous, you know. And I was doing uh, two spots, two thirty-minute spots live. So by this time, I was using my own voice. And um, uh, Danny arrived, and with his entourage, you know, he went everywhere with a crowd of people. Right. I think they probably were his yes-men. Right, yep. Because they were. Because as the more I got to know Danny, Danny was a beautiful person, but too many drinks, he turned into a monster. Oh, really? Yeah. We say that yes. a lot. And um, Danny arrived and I saw the show and everything, and he said, oh, dear boy, you must come back to um, my, uh, um, you know, his apartment in Turak. He had an apartment in Turak. He was renting well for the run of his show in Melbourne. Anyway, we got back to Danny's apartment and Jack was there and a load of his hangers-on and myself and my hairdresser and my partner were there. And, uh, of course, we walked in and Danny said, French champagne, Jack, French champagne. And out came, I think it was Verve Clicquot or something like that. You know, the real deal. And, well, of course, Danny had had a few drinks at the club as well. So he was well on his way to turning into a monster. And he turned to me uh, in front of all these people and he said, do you know, I saw your act 
and I could do, I could do your act here right now. I could do the whole thing right through. You didn't surprise me one iota. And I thought, oh my God, is this coming from the mouth of my idol? And I thought, I can't believe it. You know, so um, the evening turned a bit sour after that. I got the vicious side of Danny's tongue many times because, you know, we got to know him and I saw him appearing in Wales. When I was over in Wales working, Danny was working. He, it was towards the end of his career and he was working at um, reception hall. Right. And I went to see him there. He'd put on a lot of weight by this time. And also, prior to this, I actually saw him in Hello, Dolly. Oh, the famous production, yeah. That flopped. Uh, we saw, I went with um, uh, my nephew, my gay nephew, and... Um, a friend of mine, an Australian friend of mine, we went to, we booked to see him and it was at the Prince of Wales, hello Dolly. And we walked in and who should we spot but Jack, his manager. But Jack saw us and he said, I'll come backstage after. I said, yes, I'd love to. Well, anyway, we went in and um, it was, the place was only half full. And... Um, it just didn't work, Peter, because, you know, Hello, Dolly is a love story between a man and a woman. Yeah, yeah. But it just didn't click, knowing it was drag. Stan, you know. um, how, how did you define yourself through your career? We, would you call yourself a female impersonator or a drag artist, a drag oh, I yeah, Look, whatever they say comes with me. Um, uh, Danny hated to be called a drag. I'm not a drag act, you would say. It was very Lady Bracknell. <laughs> yes. And uh, I'm not a drag act. I'm an impersonator. Yeah. Well, we we talked we talked a little bit before. There's lots of personas for the drag artist, you know, whether it was the, the glamour or the, the comedy queens. You did a bit of both, didn't you? The comedy and the glamour. I did, uh, yeah, I did um, a lot of slapstick and um, I combined the, do when I, the two when I was doing my, um, my stand-up, yeah. And whenever I um, went, you know, I travelled, um, I did a, a four-month tour of WA, the towns in WA with and I compared and starred in a show called Les Coquettes. And they traveled to WA. And also I got the, but you know, the apart from the eight years run with Lay Girls in Melbourne, I got a five year run with comparing and starring in, doing my slapstick and my, um, straight drag it comparing a, a male strip show oh good gig and it, eh, it was a five-year gig and it was fabulous 
now this has how popular um, Cheeky Chap Show was. We were being flown, me and the rest of the boys, there were three male strippers, we were being flown by the manager to Sydney, put up in motels, right, for the week. Um, But we were doing shows at the big clubs in Sydney. We were doing a morning show. We do a lunchtime show and we do an evening show and everyone was packed. They were making a mozza of money. Yeah. So, of course, they could afford to uh, fly. It was great. Yes, live a bit comfortably. It was fabulous, yeah. Stan, while I've got access to you, just historically, you know, you're a gentleman of a a certain generation and growing up in the UK. Can I ask you, did you ever know any of the language called Polari? Oh, I know Polari, yes. Nanti... Uh, bold rider on the Omi Pallone, yes. In fact, on um, if you Google Stan Munro drag YouTube, yeah, I talk about Polari. I'm being interviewed by the uh, by William that that helped me write the book. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. There's there's about ten sites with him talking to me here at home about my life and about um, different things. Each segment's about eight minutes. And, oh, um, great. Yeah. And there's that- a couple of couple of performances on there too at a, at a um, big uh, get-together of uh, uh, past drag queens in Melbourne. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. Oh, people, listeners can check that out. But- yeah, it's up there. But P- Polari, Polari was a coded language amongst gay men, wasn't it? It started in the 30s and it was started by Romani gypsies, right? Yeah, yeah. And quite a few, um, uh, some of the slangs is Italian, uh, like Bona, you know, Buona, you know, um, and uh, Cazzo, meaning... Uh, a penis. Katsu, really? Yeah. So, so it was actually yeah. learning another language, yes. Um, it was another language and it was used uh, way back in the 30s. And then the show, showbiz people caught on to it and then the gays used it a lot. And, you know, it's still used around the gay um, clubs in... Um, in the UK to this very day. Oh, that's fantastic. It never really, it, uh, it didn't catch on all that much. It hasn't caught on much in on the uh, scene here in, um, in Australia. A few, few people uh, know it, you know, still, still talk it. But it really is a UK tradition on, on the scene there. I think there's yeah. a, I think there is a language or a vernacular around now that's been invented for the you know the contemporary queens and uh, and gays. Yeah. Throw, yeah throwing but, throwing shade and um yeah, uh, yeah. I love I love the old English uh, Polari I do. When it, whenever I've worked back in England it's lovely to catch up and talk Polari to people. Yeah. 
Fantastic. I love it. Well, Stan, I have loved talking to you for this last hour. It's It's gone very quickly. We're an hour already. How about that? Wow. I'm sure there's a lot more to cover, but um, let's hope that some publisher seizes on your book very, very soon and um, we can all well, get a copy uh, and devour it. I, I, I hope it gets published, you know. Um, yeah, because there are a lot of three years of work went into that book. Yeah. And uh, I think I told you it's called Queen of the Valleys. Yeah. But getting a publisher, this is it. You know? well, if, if anyone's listening or you know a good publisher, uh, send them Stan's way. You can uh, contact him through this uh, my website. Well, this, this podcast will be probably heard all over the UK by friends of mine. It will indeed. Do you want to say hello to anyone? Not really. <laughs> Just tune in and listen. <laughs> Stan, thank all you. My, all, my, all my UK friends, of course. of course. And also my friend uh, Alan Bug, who I've done a lot of charities. I've done charities in the UK for him. Yeah. He runs Cancer as a Drag. And um, who's your mate that helped set us up today? Because um, we've been talking about doing this connection for a while, but you finally got your, your Zoom organized and enabled us to oh, chat. Yes, Mark. Yeah, so thank you to Mark for uh, arranging that. Appreciate it very oh, much. That's great. And I'm yeah. glad I came through loud and clear. And the only reason, uh, you know, the audience can't see it, but Peter, the only reason I'm wearing this rainbow colored dressing gown is because it is so cold here at the moment. <laughs> I haven't put my heat on. <laughs> okay. Well, keep warm. Thank you, Stan, and thank you for all you've given us over the decades. Oh, thanks for given me this opportunity i feel i feel really uh, honored peter and we we uh, will keep in touch we will indeed bye stan bye isn't stan a lot of fun his enthusiasm is contagious and his humor wicked it was an absolute joy to feature stan in this episode his life experience is extraordinary and let's hope he finds a publisher soon so that we can all enjoy more of his story. You've been listening to The Stages Podcast. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.